Welcome to Neo Academia, where the walls of the ivory tower are shifting. I'm Natasha Mott, and today I'll be sitting down with Todd Cashton to figure out how academia could undergo a principled rebellion. Todd is a professor of psychology at George Mason University, known for his teaching, mentoring, and a prolific research program on well-being. Todd's written five books, and today we'll be exploring his latest, The Art of Insubordination. But before we get started, I've got to tell you. Neo Academia is possible first and foremost because of you. I appreciate your support, and if you love what we're doing here, head over to theorygang.io forward slash newsletter for behind-the-scenes footage and much more bonus content. Thank you for sharing your most valuable resource, your attention. And if you're interested in making better use of your attention, I got you. Neo Academia is also possible through support from Readocracy. Readocracy is on a mission to save the internet by making how we inform ourselves matter. So they've created a first-of-its-kind technology that rewards people for consuming high-quality content. Readocracy makes the content you consume count, awarding points, badges, LinkedIn upgrades, and insights into your information diet. These insights are like a Fitbit for your mind. They can help you understand how your information diet is affecting how you think and feel. Readocracy has won awards and backing from Mozilla and Betaworks and is used by curious minds at Stripe, Cisco, Zoom, and over 30 other top companies and schools. Neo Academia is proud to be sponsored by Readocracy and has a series of collections curated by me and each of our guests on readocracy.com. And for access to the Neo Academia resource collections, head over to theorygang.io forward slash newsletter for this episode's show notes. Now let's explore. I first met you on TikTok. I saw one of your TikToks and I thought, I like what this guy's saying. There were not a lot of bells and whistles on the TikTok, but I'm like, no, this guy's got a good message. I immediately downloaded your book for some reason. And I thought this guy would be really interesting to have on this podcast because you frame insubordination in this book in such a beautiful way. And I feel like I've always been kind of a rebel myself. I grew up raised by a Rhonda. You grew up raised by a Roxanne. I read at the end. I think that we kind of grew up the same. Like we probably have a very similar perspective. But I wanted to ask you about your thoughts on the academic institution as it pertains to being a rebel. What do you think is the most important place where we need rebellion in the university systems today? I mean, there's no question it's permitting and embracing people to take their private opinions and thoughts and express them publicly in the room with other people. The numbers are just terrifying. It's over 60% of people are saying that they're self-silencing about mm -hmm. things that they truly care about the topic. And I mean, for me personally, if you're in a room and you're talking about where do we make budget cuts and someone is waiting to lick their fingers like a golfer and seeing where the winds are blowing before they speak versus saying my initial impulse with my knowledge base is that we need to focus less on recycling in our institution, which is costing 10% of our budget and putting that money towards how do we recruit people who are highly talented but controversial figures who will offset a very homogenous number of people in this institution. And here's the thing, when the person voices that thing that they were reticent to say publicly, they might be wrong, but it gets the conversation rolling of, are we homogenous? Are we spending too much on recycling? Is there utility in asking ourselves that there might be a cost if everyone has the same ideological views? So everything could be wrong, but it opens up a series of questions and that's what the institution is missing, those questions. 
And the typical response over the past couple of years has been, it's not my job to educate you and you have to do the homework on your own. And that's somewhat tangential to having a face-to-face di -face dialogue. Right. I mean, it's contradictory to the entire premise of the university. Isn't it a repository for knowledge and a place where we go to build on our knowledge? And that response to me from academics is absolutely abhorrent to say that you need to do your own research. Then what is the point of having you as a professor here at the university? Yeah, just flip the grid towards a non-controversial play of this. Today in my class, we were talking about cross-cultural differences in happiness. And so we are comparing countries. So we're comparing oh. sub-Saharan Africa to Costa Rica, to Scandinavian countries, to Korea. George Mason University happens to be one of the top 10 most diverse schools in the country. And in that room is people that have those ethnic backgrounds, not like myself. Should I avoid any of that content and any of that research because there is a matching between racial and ethnic demographics in my class and the content on this slide? Or can I actually set this up and say, listen, I'm going to present a bunch of findings that are going to tell you on average which country is better to live in for your happiness, but it says nothing about the individual. Hold that as we go through some very controversial data that we play with this. The students love these conversations because of exactly what you said. I say to them, listen, after I present this, who has beefs, who has questions, who has thoughts, who's skeptical and cynical of everything that I'm talking about and everything you've read about. And I leave space for them to play. And that play is what's missing in a lot of the conversations about very important sociological topics. I'm so glad you said that because that's why I started this podcast and my other podcast. I, I miss that. I miss playing with ideas. Since I, since I left my postdoc, I was devastated. I really wanted to be an academic, but I realized there's not a lot of room for play. There's no room for error. There's no room to be wrong. There's no room for play in the university. And I thought this is not what I hoped it would be. I'm not on a quest to carve out how right I am and how much I know. That's not what I ever got into this for. And I've heard so many academics tell me lately that they miss having fun with these thoughts. And I love that you give that to your students. And so do you think that this is the way in through play? I think you have to change the principles of how you have conversations first. I think with the undergraduate students, it's easy to play because they're coming there to learn. They're not trying to show how smart they are. Mm -hmm. Once you move up the ranks, grad students, the postdoc, faculty members, administrators, people are trying to show power. They're, le they're leaning with power. They're leaning with status as opposed to whoever has the best quality ideas gets to win this conversation and gets the spotlight. So mm -hmm. you have to start with those principles, which is how do we design this so that the message becomes more important than the messenger? It's not just academic. Everyone's being exposed to this. You can be very low on agreeableness. So you're not polite. You're not inoffensive. You are cantankerous. You're quarrelsome. And being low on agreeableness can be grating, and it could be annoying, and it could make you frustrated. But we should be very clear that there's very little correlation to zero correlation between intelligence, good decision-making, and an effective ability to balance evidence that supports your ideas and evidence that's against your ideas. There's nothing to say that if you're low on agreeableness, you're bad at this stuff. If you want superior decision-making, 
if you want good solutions, if you want innovation and creativity, it is really horrible to rely on this proxy of likability, niceness, and politeness. There's so many systems that are anonymous where people are voting for you of, do you or don't you get tenure? You have a committee of your peers that determines, do you get a promotion? You get a committee that determines, can you invent a new class? And so if you're not likable, and likable is overly valued, you're not gonna be getting access to all the things that makes being a person who's devoting themselves to the mind and to educating people, you're getting unnecessary barriers. And to me, that's a very, that's a question to explore of why are we putting likability on a pedestal as opposed to competence, trustworthiness, and being unbiased. Yeah, I mean, and since the universities have really stopped growing and they've been pumping out PhDs, those kinds of people are just floating around. But one thing I've noticed is that I've been on this friend, Bumble friend dating app since I moved to Nashville, just looking to meet people. And every time I see someone with a PhD, I'm, I get a little excited. I'm like, oh, fun. Like we'll be able to talk about research. And, and then I meet them and I'm sorely disappointed. <laughs> Because first of all, they are highly specialized and the conversation, if it's not directly centered around their domain, the conversation is horrible. It's like I'm talking to a 15 year old otherwise, because I think they developmentally stopped. So not only about the agreeableness, like they have this very vanilla, basic personality. You can expect what they're going to say and how they're going to say it. And they have a verbiage, much like a corporate kind of a speak, but academic kind of speak, but they're stunted in my opinion. And do you think this is because there's this assembly line to get where you want to get in academia and you have to be exactly what is expected of you? It, I mean, I'm so interested in how you jump off a conversation of two people with their specializations to, hey, like, what do you read and do on your free time that's unrelated to work? Like, I don't want to be friends with someone who's interested in 1500s medieval literature. I mean, I want to be friends with someone who is interesting, fun, adventurous, and has an entire life history of events that I know nothing about. Specializations for insects of very particular tasks of building habitats, procreating, and then making sure you live to another day. The idea of over-specialization in academia is problematic because the idea that you're supposed to stay in your lane of what you're focusing on is anathema to what we know about how the creative process operates. I mean, the easiest way to be creative is I mix my peanut butter in your chocolate and then all of a sudden you're like, hey, but can we throw in some whey protein powder and some acai berries? And all of a sudden you may have a very tasty smoothie. It may be disgusting, but it's the first iteration of something that's going to be very different. That's some merger between our mental abilities and our experiences. This is how you create. The lack of creativity, in my opinion, comes from fear, from a fear of not knowing enough. Because even me starting this podcast, there's a million reasons not to. I'm not an academic. And I'm doing a podcast called Neo Academia, where we're exploring how the academic system is changing. I don't have the expertise necessarily. In theory, you know, my, I had a great advisor and she helped me figure out what steps I needed to take, to which I promptly said, fuck that, and turned around and never came back. But it's a fear of being creative because what if you're wrong? What if you don't know enough? What if you don't have enough expertise to speak on this? And I think a lot of people are, because of the permanence of the internet, especially, they're afraid of being wrong. They're afraid of showing up and having this track record, like you say, of, oh, look at this person. Look at what they said 10 years ago. Look what they said yesterday. We're not really giving people the room to be creative, the room to change or grow. Yeah, we're definitely disincentivizing people to take social risks. And the social risks is 
you offer hypotheses before you know what the data show. I mean, this is the first thing you learn in science is hypothesizing. Like this just happened today. There's an interesting, there's world regional data of suicide rates from 1980 to 2016. And they don't show a systematic increase over the course of time. It's actually really convoluted, the data. There's an interesting drop in the 2000s. There's an interesting rise around 2012. And then there's another drop. And someone asked me, like, hey, I know this goes against what the media is saying about how mental health problems are only increasing. It's an epidemic. But how do you make sense of all these upward trends and then these little troughs? And I said, listen, I can make up a story but I have no freaking clue about what's happening across the globe to make mm -hmm. any meaningful hypothesis. Now that I know where the troughs are and where the rises are, you can map history onto there and make a really nice story. And what we need is we need people before that information comes in for someone to say right now in academia, and this is my area, is mental health difficulties or psychopathology and say, what are your hypotheses of what the percentage of people with disorders are going to be like in the next six months, one year, three years before we know the results and offer your hypotheses. And not everyone could possibly say it's only going to increase. Right. And if it doesn't increase, then you have these interesting questions. Are there naturalistic interventions that we can explore the bright spots of people who are healthy that we can then learn from them and then actually try to implement in other people's lives without pharmacology? and without psychotherapy. So we need more people to be wrong. Or even even like play with adjacent possibilities. Now you say in the book, there's a difference, right? With cartwheeling in the library, you need to have intent, not be reckless about it. And I think that in your career, if you're wrong too many times, it's a problem. And on the flip side, if you're right a lot, people start watching. I felt like I had a pretty good intuition for things in molecular biology. I'm like, this makes sense. Sequences, patterns, that's kind of what scientists do. They recognize these things. And so I had a few ideas about some molecular processes that were happening and my dumb ass starts sharing it with people. And I got scooped quite a few times. The last time I got scooped, I was like, I'm done. While I was happy that my ideas were playing out and coming to fruition, you can't survive on that in academia. In stark contradiction to this idea that you're not allowed to be wrong, you're also not really allowed to be right too early. So there's this guarded nature to academia as well. Yeah. And then the currency is dysfunctional. To be the lead thinker, the lead scientist, the progenitor of ideas is where you get all the credit. And if you're a collaborator and just with a group, a large group of people, you don't get a sufficient currency to buy you a job, a promotion, a grant. We have a very individualistic approach versus a collectivist approach. And if right. you look over the course of history, you know, you reference the cartwheeling in the library talking about the origins of Darwin. The way Darwin was successful was he built on the shoulders of over 30 other people who came close to understanding the nature of evolution, thought about it in the human species, but were afraid to reach out further and say, maybe God's not a supernatural power like God is not involved in the changes in, in primates and humans over the course of successive dozens and hundreds of generations that happens there. And he was willing to take the risk, but it took him over 20 years to go from the written manuscript to make it public. We don't want people to wait 20 years and hold on to 
genomic information that can improve the quality of life of human beings in society. And we also don't incentivize people to share that information early because, as you said, everybody is fighting to get the information out there because they know whoever's first to market gets credit for being the innovator. And we don't leave room for saying, Natasha came up with this idea, Jacob built on it, Jessica took it one step further, and then final, Mike, finally Michael put it into a trade book for the general public, and now people understand it. Often, Michael gets the credit for this general trade book. Mm -hmm. You ignore the scientists who generated the idea, especially the initial person who thought about it. And there's not enough, there's not enough incentives for people to showcase the entire trail throughout their journey if they're the ones that get all the cash and prizes. Yeah, that's a great point. We come up with a lot of problems in the world, not just in academia, but outside. Everybody spends a lot of time kind of measuring the problem and looking at the problem from different angles. But how do we experiment with that solution such that it would reach academia? So, for example, creating a system, like you said, of breadcrumbs to show someone's thinking. You would think that with all the technology we have now, Twitter and our search history and all of our sub stacks and all this stuff, you would think we'd be able to build an interesting repertoire of ideas and thought processes and show how we came to this theory, where we were 10 years ago, where we are now. That is really interesting, in my opinion. So much more than just seeing the same kind of big names, the 60, 70, 80-year-old dudes putting out these high-impact nature papers and whatnot. I want to see how they got there. I want to see who got there, who was with you. But instead, you see these big nature papers. There's 10, 15 people on them. And three of them go on to have a career. So let me take an example that I know, because I like this idea of thinking about solutions. So Daniel Goleman published this bestseller is an understatement book, Emotional Intelligence. I can't remember what year it came out, but I think it was 25 years ago. And everyone in the know in the field of psychology is aware that the idea started with Peter Salovey, who's now the president of Yale University, and John Mayer, who's a professor at University of New Hampshire. Now... Those two people who invented the concept of emotional intelligence in a very arcane, very fifth-person academic papers about emotional intelligence have received none of the benefits that have occurred with Daniel Gold. I remember being at a conference. Peter Salovey was there who invented this term, emotional intelligence, and fleshed it out. Daniel Goleman writes the book about it that gets to the public, becomes popular. A limousine comes to the scientific conference, drops off Daniel Goleman. He's got a driver. It's like a red carpet. It's a whole thing. He's got a, a personally tailored suit on. And then Peter Salovey had taken like a cab there. Who's there? Who invented the idea in the first place? And they weren't <laughs> even on the same panel to discuss emotional intelligence. Peter Salovey asked a question of Goleman, who's on a throne on stage being annoyed as, oh my God, I'm so glad we have this guy here. Now, I'm not wow. picking on Daniel Goleman as he's wrong, but what's an alternative approach to do this? Now, you could put on the front cover your co-authors. You could also have in the inside cover or the first page, as you're saying, here's the origin of this book intellectually. And it might start with Spielman talking about intelligence with an arrow leading to this amazing paper by Daniel Goleman and that occurred in around 1890. And then from that paper, he read from these researchers some other ideas, and then this book was created. As opposed to burying it in the acknowledgments of, I want to thank Daniel Goleman 
I want to thank Peter Salovey and Jack for producing this idea. Let's have it right up front so it's clear to the reader, to the organizations, to any school that wants to inject emotional intelligence in there of saying, oh, the progenitor was actually Jack and Peter. And actually, Dan was great at creating stories and weaving a tale about emotional intelligence. And everybody wins if you actually have everything transparent and upfront. This is a story that you should know as a psychologist. But this brings up an interesting point of what do we need to know as academics? We talk about hyper-specialization, but then when we hyper-specialize, we don't even know the rich history of what happened. There's so much to know. So it's it's a balance of do we need to know all of the technical aspects? Do we need to know the historical aspects? What's important? Great question. Let me say, first of all, what not to do. I think we've become very consumer-centric where the student comes in with exactly what they want to study. And then there's they're not hypotheses. I'm looking to confirm my theory about problems in society. And I'm going to collect data to confirm that. So a lot of this falls under the category of, quote-unquote, social justice that's happening in psychology right now. The problem is very simple. If you want to resolve racism, ageism, sexism, homophobia, any of those issues, you need to find the root mechanisms that explain the most variance in the problem. And so you should only have hypotheses, not confirmation when you come in. Starting from that point of that you're coming in to learn is that you need to be exposed to things on the periphery of the thing you're interested in. So if everything you're interested in is, is the early socialization and how that relates to your sexual orientation, then you need to know about the developmental nature of the brain. You need to know about peer relationships. You need to know about primary caregivers. You need to understand about opportunity-rich and opportunity-poor neighborhoods. These are on the periphery of what you're interested in, but you have to understand the brain, have to understand genomics, have to understand the environment, have to understand person-environment interactions, have to understand statistics. And with this knowledge, your questions and hypotheses should hopefully change from when you came in. And if they didn't, you should be getting feedback of how after taking six courses and being exposed to six different instructors and perspectives and reading 70 to 700 different articles, do you still have the same question before you entered into graduate school? And so being consumer-centric to me is that I make the big bucks and my colleagues make the big bucks because we're going to be the first ones to tell an all-A student. You're not all that. There's a lot of things you need to learn, and you're having problems conceptualizing our ideas, and you have some difficulty actually weaving in historical remnants that are related to the question you're interested in now, and you have potential to do this. Let me show you a better way. People now are afraid to give negative feedback because what's the currency of being a good instructor in academia? Your anonymous course evaluations. How to get good course evaluations? Be an easy grader show YouTube videos, let people out on sunnier days to go play hacky sack. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I like hacky sack, but dang. Yeah, I mean, this whole model doesn't work that. So one thing you said was we need question-driven learning. I love the advocacy that people feel when they want to start a degree. They're like, I want to change the world. Awesome. You need to learn some stuff first. You come in with so many assumptions. They want to fix racism, fat phobia, whatever. The, the truth I think that they might find is as long as there are different races, there will be racism. And you might come to that conclusion if you look hard enough. Of course, you can mitigate things, but I love when people say, I want to solve racism. 
then you want everybody to be exactly the same, in which case we will argue over words and semantics. But I love this idea that you mentioned here, framing education around a question and then letting that drive the breadth of your education. I think that is not the way we're doing education now. We're running these universities more like a business than a place to solve problems or to answer questions. And if we're running it like a business, then what is the product? The product is not the solution to these questions. The product is students who can go perform tasks and they have a flag that says, hey, I'm able to check these boxes. I did the thing that I'm supposed to do. I think the entire structure of the university system right now is in question. What is it for? Yeah, and I don't think people give a good answer. A lot of people say it's about leadership. What's leadership? Leadership is being able to handle uncertainty. How do you handle uncertainty? Is you learn how to have not have sufficient knowledge, be able to acknowledge your limitations, realize you can use other perspectives, be willing to revise your ideas and beliefs, and be actively pursuing that as opposed to passively waiting for someone to provide that feedback to you. None of that is typical in a classroom or in a research environment to have that level of humility. And we have to acknowledge that. We have to be constantly looking for not just financial conflicts of interest, but also psychological conflicts of interest. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of researchers that are tied to content topics, gender studies, African-American studies, economics, communication. You have ties where your lens, you overweight, even though it might not be the best lens for the particular problem that you're dealing with. We have to really be transparent about psychological conflicts of interest, what we're known for. So I'm known for studying social anxiety and curiosity and psychological flexibility. So anytime you see my name attached to any of those topics, you should be saying to yourself, is Todd putting his thumbs on the scale? Because this is where he gets noticed and media, media journalists contact me as opposed to when I start studying something new. Like I'm studying mm -hmm. a, how to maintain passion in long-term relationships. That's not my thing. It's something I just fell into. Mm -hmm. You are prolific. You have a lot of publications and in a lot of different areas. One thing in particular that I really liked is the Personalized Psychological Flexibility Index. I think this was just fabulous because I think psychological flexibility, tolerance for uncertainty, personally, I think these are the most important skills we could teach people today. How hard is it to shift and say, you know what, I'm going to study this over here. Do you have to rebuild all your credibility? What's happening when you do something like that? I think that the entry point is actually really simple. It's just you have a question and you contact someone who has more expertise than you and maybe you collaborate or, but maybe you, you can just, you can do a one-off anytime. I and mean, there's a paper of mine that got some traction after Obama made the statement, Republicans, when they get upset, I'm butchering this, cling to their guns, their churches and something else. You remember mm -hmm. that like in Pennsylvania? Mm -hmm. So that statement came out publicly and my laboratory was like, huh, are people more pessimistic or more optimistic in the aftermath where they feel very religious or spiritually committed to their faith? And that's a question. Like Obama raised it as if it was a fact and we're like, oh, this is a testable question. So we, we conduct this study of like spirituality and religiosity in daily life. If you have a day where you're doing some serious prayer work, you're going to a mosque, a synagogue, a church, does that actually influence your thoughts about yourself, the world and the future compared to days where you don't do that? 
And we found that, yeah, it actually does. Like Obama was right. If you cling to your churches, you end up showing like a huge boost in optimism. And if you don't, you kind of lose your marbles a little bit. But that was a one-off study of religion and spirituality. And it's not something I want to dive into too deeply. It just started off where heard a quote from the president, thought it was a cool question to test, hadn't seen it been tested before. Boom, you could dive right in. It's probably a little bit more complicated when you start doing animal science or your areas in terms of neuroscience and physiology. You got to move from lung capacity to activity in the anterior cingulate cortex. Oh, yeah. Technologically, you're restrained. But th this brings up a question that I've been tossing around a lot in my mind about I want to bring people on this podcast who are doing things in and outside of academia. And in biological sciences, it's next to impossible because you've got a million dollar mass spec. Where are you going to borrow that from? But is there a way to validate these inventories and scales outside of academia? Or do you feel like the infrastructure, the IRBs, this kind of thing, that's a necessary component? You must do this kind of stuff within academia. I definitely think that we are too obsessive in terms of human subject concerns. I mean, I could regal you with incredibly boring intellectual stories of me trying to induce loneliness in a bunch of 25 year olds. And, you know, you'd have a human subject review board would say, I don't see how this could be beneficial. And the cost seems so immense. And I would stand there. It was like Atticus Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird and say, listen, I need to tell you something that you probably already know. These 25 year olds experience loneliness all the freaking time in their everyday life. I mean, they walk past a restaurant where there's an outdoor table and they're laughing uproariously. And all of a sudden they realize, God, I feel so alone. That's happening. So mm -hmm. I just want to see what is the impact of this on their intellectual functioning. When this was trying to MK Ultra, some 25 year olds, that's what's happening over here. <laughs> there's nothing like, there's nothing torturous or painful about what I'm doing. All I'm doing is mimicking slightly like what happens in everyday life. And the benefit here is we're going to debrief them afterwards and explain what happened and try to help them with the slight intervention of these things may or may not influence you. So I think the concern that people are fragile, extremely emotionally fragile has bled over into human subject review boards. I'm not saying that the Milgram experiments should necessarily be repeated <laughs> now by shocking people, but yeah. there was a cool study by Tom Gilovich at University of Virginia, and he was interested in how horrible is boredom to human beings. And what he found was that people were more, they were willing to be electrically shocked nine times in a row rather than sit in a room and doing nothing in a dark room. And that was that's a valuable finding. Like it's so bad that you'll being shocked is better. Our tolerance for boredom is so low. We need constant stimulation. Definitely. Yeah. And that, that does infect academia. I know that students are being asked to read less and less from every decade to the next one. And there's a question of what is a college degree worth when you're reading 30% of the articles and books that someone would have read in 1995? Is it equivalent in terms of your knowledge base? And I don't know the answer to that. So at the same time, while we're hyper-specializing, we're reading all the shit that's out there right now instead of taking a deep dive historical perspective. I mean, when I tell you I never read this, any kind of scientific philosophy, I'm not kidding until after I left academia. They didn't teach me any of this. They just go, no, you test some shit and that's it. I mean, they, there was no philosophy, but I want it. Like, I still want, I mean, I feel like everybody needs that. We need, especially yeah. today, but I think we still need the infrastructure that's provided. So I hear what you're saying about the loneliness thing, but 
I don't think that's as bad as what happened at Portland State with the so-called squared incidents. You remember this, where they didn't consent reviewers. Basically, Peter Bogosian, Helen Pluckrose, and James Lindsay, they published... The conceptual penis? Is that what we're talking about? Yes. Yes. The, we're going to talk about the conceptual penis now. <laughs> they published you know, all these pieces of shit that they sent to these reviewers. And then Peter Bogosian was going to get fired. I don't know if he's still... Is he, I don't know if he's still at PSU, but he was going to get fired because he didn't he consent. This is an interesting world of these heterodox thinkers. I have lots of thoughts about this, but my quick thought about this is there is an unfortunate homogenous nature of a lot of these heterodox thinkers where I can predict where they stand on about 20 issues. And I sort of have this maxim where no student should be able to predict my political affiliation after spending a whole semester with me. I mean, actually, I can't think of almost any subject matter where you should know where I stand because I'm facilitating. And I have mm. to make sure that no matter where you stand politically, like you are welcome and involved in my classroom. And I'm gonna listen to your ideas and everything's gonna be evaluated on their merit, but I'm definitely not gonna give you any less of a voice because of where you stand. I think there's a, a very low level of compassion for the difficulty and transition of being in your late teens and your early twenties in society today. And I just think when these conversations about microaggressions and trigger warnings, we should lean towards being compassionate because this is the age where mental health difficulties start to arise. Maybe that's my clinical psychology background that makes me a little bit disappointed in a lot of these heterodox thinkers. Yeah, no, I see that as well. Speaking specifically about the IRB, issue with some of these experiments you cannot consent you could he could not have he could not have performed this experiment if he had consented the reviewers before absolutely so purely from an experimental standpoint he did nothing wrong now what they say outside of it you're right i think you're right i think you're right about all of these former idw type thinkers they all kind of march to the beat of a certain drum. And I think this speaks to the idea of intellectuals outside of academia. Now, what we're talking about is when you shift from being a scholar or an academic to being a public intellectual, where I think there are certain things that are expected of you as a public intellectual, and you have to keep up appearances, like with Jordan Peterson, when he came out, we talk about this on my other podcast quite a bit, he was an interesting thinker. He told a lot of stories. He, the maps of meaning kind of thing. And then he just fell straight down into where everybody expected him to fall down. He's on the right now, period. Like we can all just make the memes about it. We know. It's just so boring to me to fall so easily into a category. It's uninteresting. Yeah. It's, I mean, there's just a, a lot of low intellectual humility and then castigating other people as being disinterested in your ideas or unwilling to hear your ideas. Sometimes your ideas just are off. And I think it's a beautiful thing when people do mea culpas. One of the things, for example, that I really appreciate about Sam Harris in this circle is that it's just like playing wiffle ball in the street when you're a kid. And if the wiffle ball hits a tree, you say into, which means, all right, there's something that interfered with the ball. We're going to do a do-over. And when you're a public intellectual, however that's defined, is you can always come out the next day and offer words or footage of you that says, listen, I got this wrong. I apologize. Here, here's what I would do differently. But you want that to be because of the ideas, not because of the social pressure, which gets back to the mm -hmm. equation of a principled rebel. Mm -hmm. If you're doing it because of social pressure, then it's problematic because it's not about you. It's about the marketplace of ideas. So Larry Summers, when he got castigated for 
offering a few hypotheses about whether women, why women are less represented in the technology and mathematical fields at Harvard University. He did a mea culpa. He apologized to the Harvard community and to the world. And when he was offered a reason of why he apologized, he just said, as president, my message of offering this hypothesis as, a, as an economist, as a scientist, was interfering with the role is as the leading figure of Harvard University representing it. I need to let nothing get in the way of you feeling that you, regardless of your demographics, belongs at Harvard if you got into Harvard. And that's a very understandable. He explained mm-hmm. the reason. It wasn't necessarily because of the pressure. It was just that it was interfering with a much more important message is you land at Harvard, you belong here, you get access to resources, and your platform is the same as everybody else's. And right. that is a very good message to have. It's a very good reason for making a mea culpa. Yeah, I think maybe if someone else had said it, it might have been different. But because he's the president of Harvard, his role is not really necessarily to offer these kinds of explanations or even to investigate it. His role is to run the university. Yeah. No, you said it perfectly. That's right. I get it. I get it. No, I think that's, I understand that. We could talk about the administrator burden. How would, actually, let's talk about it since we're talking about administrators. We all talk about this within the university, the, let's say, administrator heavy scene. What would a principled insubordinate do to rectify this issue? There's a couple things. One is the financial structure of a university is top heavy. So administrators are making more money than the people that are actually doing the work. It's, it's no, it's perfectly analogous to college football coaches getting paid, being the highest paid person at university. When you have college students putting their life on the line with traumatic brain injuries, who are getting paid a couple hundred dollars for the local barbecue shack where they're in a commercial right now. It's completely inverted. The people who are the creators, the innovators of the ideas should be creating, should be getting the most money. And you don't go into academia to become a rich person with a yacht and then a 10 bedroom house in the Hamptons. You get financial stability. You have enough job security that you hopefully use that platform where you get to say the things that people that don't have the temperament don't have the financial security and don't have the advantages to know how to work with society, the problems that exist, that you get to speak up for them. And so the idea that administrators make two, three, five times the salary of the best scientists that exist in a university, it just doesn't make sense to me. So if you are interested in increasing your wages and your financial quality of life, or you're interested in power, you move up the ranks, you become an administrator. And you don't hear about too many administrators outside of University of Chicago that are fighting for free inquiry and free speech and taking the friction that comes with that as the president of a university. This is going to be a controversial statement, and that's okay because this needs to be said. In academia, particularly the East Coast and West Coast, like the really elite universities, Stanford's, Emory's, Yale's, the mainstream orthodoxy thinking right now is these are racist organizations. There's longstanding history of it. We have to rectify it in the present day. And there's not really a clear discernment between what it was like in 1970 versus 1980 versus 2000, versus 2010, versus 2022. There's not a conversation of what's the trajectory of change, what's the evidence for and against that the entire institution is racist. It's very rare that a problem manifests itself in every nook and cranny of an organization is complicated. 
as a university. You're talking about so many majors, so many colleges, so many little hubs that exist. To me, uh, a good administrator would say, let's look for where the problem exists and put our resources there and be efficient and effective. And let's see where there are bright spots and let's try to replicate that in other parts of the university. And a good administrator would be willing to take the social pressure, which is you need to fix everything now. We don't have time to do program evaluation of what the problem is and how big it is. You need that bravery, you need that discipline, and you need the foresight that you can wait for a few weeks and think about the problem and collect as much evidence as possible and not just go for the loudest voice. Do you think this has to do with kind of board of trustees and endowments and things like that? Definitely outside of my pay grade, but always follow power and money and be impressed by people that are willing to go against their financial interests. And when people never go against the wave of tension that raises questions, somebody has to innovate and it has to be the first to market and it's going to be challenging to do that. But that's why you make the big bucks. You should be choosing people that have the tenacity to do that. This is the problem with the public intellectual sphere. As someone trying to build a career in learning, that's what I'm trying to do here. I want to build a career where I get to learn shit, talk about it with smart people, maybe come up with some cool ideas, maybe even put a hand in implementing those ideas. But I'm trying to do that. And there's a big fear that I've had, at least when I left academia, that's over was my fear. Then I left corporate sector. I'm like, now I'm throwing away all my money. That's cool. So there's a lot of places where you can fumble. Now it's like, oh, you're starting to get traction. Well, don't talk about this. I think a lot of these people who could be great thinkers, they give into the fear and their ideas just subside in favor of what's popular. Like you said, they give into the social pressure. Yeah. So I have a colleague at George Mason who is really good principled rebel in his thinking. And he, he has a book about the case against education, Brian Kaplan. Oh, I love Brian Kaplan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's very clear. Here he is as a professor at a university saying that much of a college degree is about showing that you can conform so that you can follow the rules and stick around for four years because you don't get any benefits for having three years of college. So there's an element of your showcasing your conformity. There's an element of status that you have this degree, particularly from an elite university. And then the third one is about money. You just, you make more money when you're a college graduate. We have four years of a young person's life. How do we shape and mold people? Shape them into what? Shaping someone into a leader seems very unappealing to me because not everyone can be leaders. So it just seems like the wrong little bumper sticker approach of thinking about. I mean, to me, it's about teaching people to think critically and then be willing to put their neck out and challenge authority figures, rules and norms that seem dysfunctional or antiquated. Yeah, I don't think we're incentivizing those things. You said, oh, the university wants to create leaders. I disagree. I think Brian Kaplan would disagree as well. What the university is trying to do is create managers, not leaders. There's a difference. And the incentive is to become a manager because a manager is someone who is basically handed a pile of money and some of that money they get to put in their pocket and the rest of it, they decide where it's going to go. We don't want to create a bunch of managers. We've got a plethora of managers in this country, the professional managerial class, we might even say. And I think that's the vibe I get from a lot of young PhDs these days is the PMC. It's bourgeois. It's, it's, I'm sorry, but it's God awful. I don't know how we 
encourage principled rebels, people that actually want to, you know, make change and live good lives. And they don't care necessarily about the yachts and all this stuff, because I think that's what everybody's thinking. First, you get the money, then you get the power, and you're never really going to get that. You're not getting a yacht. Even if you sell out, you are not getting a yacht. You know what I mean? Like administrators in university, why are you thinking with your $400,000 salary that you need more? I had a point with money where I was like, this is enough. 10 years of this. And I'm like, I don't need to do anything else. Does nobody else think that? I think people misunderstand wealth because there's your own personal philosophy about wealth. And then there's the social comparison to other people about what wealth is. And one of the things about academia is the stakes are so low, and so you're really honing in on social comparisons. I mean, I remember during the three years of COVID, being in faculty conversations, these formal meetings about how do you evaluate the quality of someone's work over the past year when it was during a pandemic? And the modal response was, we shouldn't be doing it because everyone's trying really hard, everyone's doing great work, and everyone's putting everything into the game. And I kept shaking my head saying, no. They're not like, <laughs> no, no, you can't just say that because you didn't even take a poll. And then not every study is equal in terms of their quality. I mean, especially in your world of neuroscience and physiology, shoot, you forget to measure a baseline and all of a sudden it's completely moot everything that you've studied when you're actually trying to investigate what's the impact of deep breathing or any intervention whatsoever. There's a conversation about merit that has to be brought in early and stick around that not all ideas are equal. Not all questions are good. Not all things that are published are valuable just because the arbiters have said it deserves to be in the stacks in the library. And part of the education process is distinguishing wheat and chaff and saying, this was published, unbelievable. How were these reviewers so unwilling to acknowledge that a sample size of 30 people cannot tell us anything about what Asian American astronauts are like, it's, I mean, it's just too, it's just too small of a sample. And then if you don't have a comparison group, how can you say anything about those demographics? Studies like that exist. There's thousands of those studies. And, and I think we have to be able to go against our interests sometimes and say, you know what? This is not high quality work. It's B minus work. You're doing A work. This is the type of thing that should be rewarded and incentivized for our students, especially when they're starting early and for faculty, no matter whether they have tenure or not, it's really is about what have you done lately in terms of the quality of this exact thing that we're examining. Yeah. And that's not a popular thing to say at this point. To say that this entire way of thinking is flawed, you might as well commit academic suicide because you're not being sensitive. You're not being a good advocate. You're not uh, pandering to what others want you to say. So my question is, how have you attracted the people who've got your back though, because you have. So what, how did you get there? What, how did you find them? It's a good question. I mean, I'm a New Yorker, so I have the temperament to go against the grain and I can handle a great deal of heat. And I take that seriously. I take it very seriously because I have that, I won the genetic lottery on temperament that I can handle social persecution. That's, I That's debatable. I'm from Chicago. Midwesterners got it better. We got it better. I, you know what? Midwesterners do let just water just drip over a duck's back. I mean, there's no question. And they're more self-effacing than a New Yorker. I'll give Midwesterners credit about this. But if you have this temperament, that's why I wrote the book. This is my mission in life is 
to speak up for people that are more reticent, are shyer, are more socially anxious, are more sensitive to rejection. I mean, Gallup has done a great service of explaining that you only need one to three close friends in your workplace, and it'll transform your well-being in a workplace. You can feel secure. You can you'll be willing to be more risk-prone as opposed to risk-averse, and you can handle the idea of a number of adults that are, do not find you to be an affinity, prefer not to be around you, and don't invite you to lunch dates. Who has time to hang out with dozens of people in an adult world? I mean, I have three kids that I want to spend time with. I mean, I have a perfectly functional life with enough people that I play pickleball with, that I work out with, that I hang out with. I have no room for other characters. So with that social world, you only need one or two people in the workplace that have your back. And I think a lot of people have this belief that it's a political system where you have to collect the majority vote for yeah. you to function in this organization. And that's an anathema for you being mm -hmm. authentic. And it's an anathema for you speaking your voice when the orthodox view is going in the wrong direction. And I've taken lots of heat like reg on a regular basis. Do you want to tell the story you told me about how you got booed off stage? You, I mean, I think you're likable as a rude Midwesterner, but maybe other people don't. Yeah, I was giving a talk about psychological flexibility. I was the last speaker of a series of four people. Everyone who spoke before me spoke about mindfulness and Aaron Beck and Albert Ellis, they're the founders of cognitive behavioral therapy. And they talked about one of the strategies for dealing with depressive thoughts or anxious thoughts is cognitive restructuring. If I said to myself, oh my God, Natasha seems not to be paying attention to me. I must be boring. I must be unintelligent. I am mind reading. It's a logical thought. So I can reframe it in terms of, I don't have no idea what Natasha's thinking. And that reframing of that thought supposedly reduces my depression anxiety. So three, three talks in a row, same content, different experiments. And so I popped on stage and said, listen, for those of you that are hoping for another talk on mindfulness and kind reframing, I hate to tell you, I'm going to actually talk about something different. And everyone was booing me as if I was saying that the three talks in front of me were horrible. And uh, so then I started talking and I was talking about how our research shows that mindfulness actually doesn't predict creativity, innovation better than psychological flexibility. As I'm giving this talk, I notice in the audience was the guy with the most popular mindfulness measure in the field of psychology. And I called him out. I said, hey, good to see you in the audience in the middle of my talk. By the way, I apologize for ripping mindfulness in a new thread. And then I got booed for... <laughs> playfully interacting with him and acknowledging him in this group setting. And people started to walk out. There were a few people that started to walk out of the talk. And afterwards, when I hung out with the other three speakers, I was saying, I was like, wow, you would think that because we're not talking to our therapy clients, that we could be playful and goofy and not take ourselves seriously. It was a lot of attack for a very low-grade, playful verbage. So were they most of the people clinicians or academics? This are social and personality psychologists, not even therapists. So they're academics, basically. Yeah. This is the thing, though. Talking about people who have your back. Those people are not your friends. They can't it, be. It was, I can say this. Sometimes you have beautiful litmus tests to see, would I want to be friends with you? Would I want to sit around a fire pit and drink bourbon with you if you boo people and are upset because someone is saying mindfulness is pretty boring. Oh, actually, that was another time I got booed. I said, listen, I know mindfulness is pretty boring, so I'm going to start talking about something else. And everyone went kazoo on me. 
it's as it's as if I said something like a, an anti-Semitic mark in a room full of people. I didn't realize that mindfulness was held so close to the vest. Oh gosh, this is one of my major beefs. I mean, I'm in an academic writing group with the Heterodox Academy, actually. Oh no, formerly known as the Heterodox Academy. We've been ousted, actually. And there's a few people that I love. I got to know a few people. But a lot of these people take themselves so seriously. I can't. I doubt they'll ever listen to my podcast because they take themselves that seriously. So I have no problem saying this, and I probably wouldn't say it to their faces just because it's not fruitful. People want to say things about the university that that it's toxic and it's conservative, and it is. But also, I'm starting to realize maybe those just aren't my people. Maybe that needs to be that, and I need to be this. I'm going to ask you your opinion about what you think about this concept of neo-academia. The job of the university is to create knowledge, maintain knowledge, and to disseminate knowledge. There are tech companies that are maintaining knowledge. There are creators that are disseminating knowledge. There's a whole bunch of people not in the hard sciences that are supposedly creating knowledge. The university system, in my opinion, isn't really doing a lot of that beyond creating. They're disseminating knowledge in a factory assembly line kind of way. But what do you think about this idea? The way I look at it is, what are the things that are not rewarded in academia that are involving educating the public about science? I publish, I talk to a reporter for two hours at the BBC and they publish a, an article about curiosity. It reaches millions of people. That isn't even a line that I write in my annual review. I write a blog post. I think my Psychology Today blog post has, last I saw, 4.5 million unique readers. That has no value in academia. I wrote an article for Inside Higher Ed about the 10 principles for productive conflict. And it was designed for universities to actually adopt this, so that you can actually have a piece of paper, a oh, single page, and you can give it to people before a meeting of like, here are things, the benevolence principle, the likability principle, assumption of positive intent principle. And that's not, a, that's not a line on there. So, and that's going to reach ma many more people than my past 10 years of scientific articles I've published in prestige, prestigious outlets that happens there. Having a Twitter following, answering people's questions about science, people that want to go to school, people that are in school, early career researchers, people that want to access to my data set, that gets nothing. That gets no value in academia. If I write an op-ed for the New York Times or Wall Street Journal, nothing. So just... With that list, ask yourself, if you're listening to this podcast and your taxpayer dollars are going to public education to somewhat fund universities, and I'm at a public university, and none of those things that reach the public are rewarded, being on a podcast, but this is not something I would ever write down because it's been disincentivized. That's problematic. This is how I promulgate information in a digestible, fun way about what I do in the laboratory, where I have the privilege of taxpayer dollars and grant funding agencies and benefactors and thousands of students that sit in, I get to test, I get to stress test ideas and throw it out there to the public that happens there. And for that not to count, says something that you need this neo-academia where you need people who will be rewarded for doing the tasks that people in academia won't do. No, I do it because I love it. I do it because I have tenure, so I have the job security. But why should you have to wait until this arbitrary thing called tenure to do the things that the world needs? You've got a dysfunctional political system. You have a plenty of dysfunction in the educational system. You have a tremendous problems in the criminal justice system. And the list goes on and on. And if there's knowledge out there, 
damn, social scientists, biological scientists get the information out. The scientific articles is just the starting point, not the end point. I love that. I really appreciate you being here. And I want to finish with saying that your wisdom from weirdos, it's like you wrote this book for me. <laughs> you put all of these things into such an interesting framework. And I'm listening to the book. I'm like, yes, yes. <laughs> we need to affirm values like autonomy in the world. And when we don't agree with things, that's the juice right there where you feel a little bit like, I'm not quite sure I know what this person is up to, but I'm going to, I'm going to pay attention for a minute anyways. So I really appreciate that. Your reaction to the book makes it worthwhile for six years of slaving at it. Natasha, love this. You're awesome. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We are going to continue exploring the idea of a principled academic rebellion over at theoryyang.io forward slash newsletter. There you'll find a special giveaway from this episode, bonus footage, and access to a Readocracy collection with resources curated by me and Todd. To check out more of Todd's ideas, you can find his newsletter at toddcashton.substack.com.